rather than bending a story to fit a really narrowly conceived arc of what needs to happen. It's this artful collage of these moments. And I think each piece is something that is extremely personal and meaningful. You're listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. How's it going, Chad? It's going well. <laughs> How are you, Veronica? I'm good. Um, it's really nice to see you and talk to you after such a long time away. Yeah, been a while. I, I, I really missed uh, getting to see you last month. I know. Yeah, we've missed a month. We've got some explaining to do. <laughs> To no one, I feel like, but okay. Yeah, to my parents who were like, where's the new podcast? Oh my God, I can't believe your parents are like subscribed and following. Yeah, it's the version of like a videotape in the junior high basketball game only. Now it's our 40-something son's podcast. Yeah, I can't relate to the former either, but that you sound really loved. That's awesome. They are very supportive people. And since I know they're listening, I will say thank you for that. I've been blessed. Oh my God. Shout out friend of the pod. Yeah. Chad's parents. Parent pods. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Well, we didn't record last month because I got COVID again. Yeah. Second time, which is in a way great, I guess, because I feel extra immunity for the summer. (laughs) Well, between you and me, we've had it twice. I know. I know. Yeah. 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 So we can just say it that way. The co-hosts of the podcast have had COVID a total of two times. <laughs> yeah, lots of COVID. I'm in the last little camp now. I mean, I don't know that many people that have, haven't have got it. So yeah. my guess is that I had it. Probably. And just had no idea we're asymptomatic because yeah. it doesn't make any sense so that, um, you know, I'm out in the world now again. And, but yes, um, definitely the saddest cancellation of a podcast recording was the I know. was the image of the COVID <laughs> I test. <laughs> I sent it to a friend of mine afterward thinking that this is an okay way to communicate like logistical news. And he was like, I thought you were pregnant. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. If you're pregnant, like, we're still recording. What's that? Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, sorry. Get on the pod. I quit the pod. <laughs> um, anyway, so now we're we're doing same film, but the theme has shifted. Yeah, we got a little navigating to do there. So the yeah. original idea, I mean, we've, we've had the same movie in mind for mm-hmm. about two months now, mm-hmm. which is Wings of Desire, which as in the last month kind of had a little mini renaissance online. So yeah. we missed that, but like to do our usual, hey, we're here too at the end. <laughs> yeah, once everything is a little bit over. But to be fair, we had we had planned, I know it is literally screening, I think either today or tomorrow at Ebert Fest oh, cool. for a live audience with a host. I know um, wow. there was just a, a couple of uh, podcasts I listened to have covered it in the last month. So I was like, okay, I don't know what's in the air. Yeah, uh, I always attribute everything to the magic of Peter Falk somehow. But 
we are here now to talk about it, and we have a, a very special guest that I'm really excited about. The problem is the theme was uh, road movies on the road last month, which Wings of Desire makes a good deal of sense for, especially with its director, who has you know, famously directed a trilogy of road movies, and mm-hmm. possibly a quadrilogy. Is that a word? Mm-mm. Nah, I'm making it one. <laughs> But now the theme is siblings. The connection is a little bit more tenuous, but I think you had a, a pretty good point of like, here's how we can tie it into siblings. So what was that wonderful idea? Well, I don't know if it's so enlightening, but if not brothers, definitely brethren. I think this is like Ooh. a really outstanding movie about friendship. Yeah. I love a bros out on the town film. Yeah. It's basically a bro hang movie with the angels. It is. Yeah. 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 There's a little Midnight Run. I think every movie I think has reminded me of Midnight Run ever since I saw it. Um, So it's just really on my, it's heavy on my mind. But yeah, that kind of vibe, the city symphony times Midnight Run. I like it. Basically, we're all siblings of the human race. Wow. Yeah. Well, with that, why don't you just intro our guest? Okay, I would love to do that. Uh, <laughs> again, as we like to do when we go along here, we're congratulating the guests on staying quiet while we just talk and talk. So our guest today is Karina Wolf. Karina is the author of several books for young readers and has written scripts for film and television projects, including The Alienist, Angel of Darkness. She's also one of Brightwall Darkroom's very earliest contributors, writing her first piece for us way back in October of 2009, uh, when we were just a silly little three-month-old Tumblr blog. Since then, she's written nearly 40 essays for the site on everything from Desperately Seeking Susan to The Royal Tenenbaums to my co-host's very favorite film, Notorious. And Karina also wrote the very first piece in our very first issue which I like to tell everybody was published almost 10 years ago this month. Next next month will be 10 years since that first issue came out. And that was not an accident. She's one of my very favorite film writers and people, and I wanted her writing to help set the tone for all I hope that Brightwall Darkroom could eventually be. She's also a big Vim Vendors fan and wrote a fantastic essay several years ago on Wings of Desire, which we can't wait to talk with her about. So welcome to the show, Karina. Oh, thank you. Wow, what an amazing introduction. I know I was, I was like lingering, lurking. Like a like a supernatural <laughs> being waiting to be invited in to say something. Welcome in. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Karina has joined the chat. Yeah. Here I am. Where do we want to jump in on this wonderful film that uh, we could talk for hours about, but only have less than an hour to talk about? Maybe I'll do synopsis. Cool. Mm. For those who don't know, which I can't imagine as many, circling over West Berlin, Wings of Desire is Vim Vendors' City Symphony. Having lived in the U.S. for six years prior to shooting, Vendors let his own estranged yet intimately familiar perspective inform that of his characters. Two angels, played by Bruno Ganz and Otto Sander, who observe the molecular poetry of human life below. As the angel Damiel Gans falls in love with a lonely trapeze artist called Marion, played by Vendors' then-partner Solvay Domartin, who learned the art of trapeze herself within eight weeks yeah. to play the part, which is super wild, one of my favorite bits of trivia about the film. So crazy. Inspired by the potency of human connection, Gans falls to earth, inviting audiences to consider their own potential for profound transformation, however minor or mundane. So, Karina, you wrote this, like, fabulous essay about the film for Brightwall that we're going to link to in the show notes. But I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about like your first encounter with the film and how it's kind of remained in your memory since. Yeah, well, I love this movie for a long time. I think I first saw it when I was maybe 12. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's amazing. I, mean, I have I have older siblings, like much older siblings. And, and one of them, actually his girlfriend told me about this movie. Really? So I was just a loner watching a videotape <laughs> of this movie that 
but I had no, um, she didn't give me any idea of what the movie was about, you know? So, so it's like a very non-narrative film for yes. a 12 year old. <laughs> and for, for anybody. Yeah. yeah. For anybody. I mean, it's funny. It feels like the way the film works, works more easily now in a way, even mm. though I think that yeah. other kinds of propulsive narratives are so commonplace, but I feel mm. like there's something about the meditative quality of the work that feels like it kind of slots into mentality more easily now. So at the time I had no, it, it felt like challenging viewing, but it was also just astonishingly for a 12 year old. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> astonishingly <laughs> beautiful. Like I had, I had like a brief window of precocity and I think that was, that was in there yeah. right? just at that time. I don't know. So I just found it exceptionally beautiful. I think I feel like people are always asking, like, what's your favorite movie? What are your top 10 movies? Mm -hmm. I realized that there's an incredible romanticism to this movie. And one of my other favorite movies is La Belle et la Bette, which mm -hmm. um, was directed mm -hmm. by Jean Cocteau. But the cinematographer is the shared yeah. cinematographer. So it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so stunningly <laughs> beautiful. They're both just the most stunning black and white films mm -hmm. with fairy tale qualities, you know, and I just, I actually was looking just now at the trailer for La Belle et la Bette. And I think there's maybe one line in the trailer and it's love turns a beast into a man. Ooh. And I, I thought, oh, the tagline for this movie is love turns an angel into a man, you know? So, so there's something about the storytelling and about the romance of these two people meeting that I think was very compelling, you know, so it's mm -hmm, like, yeah. never mind the challenging narrative, but just the romanticism mm -hmm. and the sort of feeling of inevitability about it. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like that was incredibly compelling and persuasive and maybe misleading personally, <laughs> emotionally <laughs> about what was ahead of me. But And then I went and talked about it with all the other sixth graders at school. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, who are you? What? <laughs> That was my sort of initial viewing, but I, you know, I've seen it many times. Beautiful. Yeah, it was really thrilling. I went to NYU undergraduate. I, I did like a hybrid major, but um, I did programming. And so I actually mm. oh. got Vim Vendors to come to NYU and what? show the sequel, which is not quite as good of a film, no. but he was just wonderful and, and sort of a dream. So I was oh, wow. terrified and shy, but, but I did get to meet him. So that was exciting. So yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. I got in a huge amount of trouble because I bought him like a $500 Avedon photograph book as like an honorarium for his appearance, which was in the budget, but it was like the <laughs> maximum budget. I got like, I think chairs were thrown. <laughs> but that was exciting. That's so cool. That's amazing. I love the idea that this came to you through like a sibling's girlfriend when you were <laughs> oh. like a preteen. Yeah. That's so good. Like, how did that happen? Did she see some germ of cinephilia in you that she wanted to like water or how did that I think so she's an artist and now she's my sister-in-law so my oh you're kidding <laughs> yeah so my brothers are like 15 to 20 years older than me so I think she was in need of a speaking of siblings she was in need of <laughs> yeah siblings all right Wait, good job <laughs> cha-ching yeah <laughs> 
of maybe a sister and I was in need of a sister. So they sort of did a huge amount of not quite the kind of music sharing, record collection sharing, right, siblinghood, right. Yeah. but the movie and visual art sharing was was huge. That explains a lot that I've always wondered about how you are, how you are. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> oh, I mean, you, you had the best possible introduction. I mean, put a 12-year-old on the wings of desire path and see what happens. Yeah. Amazing. It's so cool that you there's this kind of like extra filmic romance that is the context for you coming to a film that you then sort of remember and value through the prism of romance. Yeah. Yes, that's beautifully said. I, <laughs> yeah, I feel like romance was like a huge shaping factor, both in movie going. And then I, I, I guess I was like transposing that to life. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't realize that movies are different from life. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm still not there in terms of that. <laughs> yeah, that's we're in we're all in denial about that. That realization is just hasn't yeah. hit me. No. Yeah. <laughs> Circling, yeah. but hasn't landed. Yeah. Eli, cut that part out. We we can't let that secret out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it came to you at this really young age because there's moments in this film that also really remind me. Like I, I should say, I didn't see it until um, when the child was a child, probably mm-hmm. like twenty what the twenty tens. Like mm-hmm. it when I was already in grad school. It reminds me though of movies that I came to when I was probably about 14, 15, something like that, that were totally shaping of my interest in film up to this point and like Mm. sort of setting me on that path. So the two examples that I'm thinking of are the way that the camera work kind of swoops around the apartment Mm. interior that is so much like this shot that repeats three times in Run, Lola, Run, Mm. um, that I'm sure Tom Tickfer is just like ripping off completely. But though it's more impressive in 1987, like pre-steady cam to have this like really Mm. liquid kind of movement. And then the other one is when Bruno Ganz's angel is like about to touch maybe the back of the neck or the back Mm. of the shoulder of... Marion and it looks to me I mean it probably looks nothing like it but in my memory and the way I sort of like film exists there as much as in text it's so this moment in Amelie when the guy that she's into in like the skeleton costume is like whispering and like kind of looking at the back of her neck in this really pointed and romantic way and those are two movies that I was like I can't believe movies are like this when I saw them on like HBO at my friend's house or something. It's a great feeling Yeah. We should do a podcast called I Can't Believe Movies Are Like This and just have everyone talk about when they realized movies are like this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It sets you off on a whole, I mean, for all three of us, I guess, Mm. with our various experiences, but... There's formative moments that set us off on the path that Mm -hmm. put us to where we are today, which is, I don't know, my brain likes to think about stuff like that. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think what's interesting about Amelie and about this movie is that the romance is really about not meeting, you know? Yeah. Like Sleepless (laughs) in Seattle also. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like a long build, but... The audience is forming the attachment for the characters mm-hmm. and recognizing that rightness. And yeah, I think that scene in the Airstream trailer, which I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, just that Airstream trailer, that's an allusion to the road movie right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like that fulcrum where human desire is like bred inside the angel. And there's just something so transcendent about Marianne Solveig de Martin playing that role, mm-hmm. you know, and even reading and listening to descriptions of how those scenes were lit because they're so stunning yeah. in black and white. And then, you know, at a certain point, 
when the angel becomes human, the whole movie turns color. And and it's astonishing to see what the actual colors are. Mm -hmm. It just feels like um, such a focal point because I was trying to identify. I was like, what's the most compelling thing in this movie? Because the movie is like Mm. kind of stitched together of compelling moments. And that, but that moment of looking over her shoulder, Mm -hmm. it's incredibly dignifying because she's actually like removed her robe, but it is not like prurient. So it's completely respectful of her physicality and it's not ogling her, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. but it's like a testament to who she is. And I feel like it's not there to titillate the audience. Like it's doing something completely different and also respectful without putting her on a pedestal or something. So I feel like there's some exceptional things happening in that moment and also in depicting her as a person, you know, which is so Mm -hmm. fascinating because, you know, many of her dialogues were written by Peter Hanke, who's a man and sometimes a problematic babe but they're so um moving and intimate and personal and sometimes i think about those lines that she says when she's in that trailer she's like listening to records Mm -hmm. cave records you know they're just incredibly personal and singular but also i feel like in the way that the entire movie works it's like you have these like really specific interactions with one Mm -hmm. person's concerns and somehow they become your concerns as well, or they already are your concerns. You know, it's an incredibly transformative movie that makes connections between people. How do you think that effect is possible in this film? Like, what is it that's allowing these really specific subjective thoughts and concerns that we hear in voiceover, some of which are translated in subtitles, some of which kind of go in passing in the background or in the soundtrack. And then for us to receive them and almost internalize them as like resonant or universal. I mean, it's a really humanist film, but also not corny, Mm -hmm. which is maybe the thing I appreciate the most about it. It's amazing that it's not. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's it's right on that knife edge. (laughs) I know on paper, it's not necessarily like something I think I would be crazy about, but then it just is like so authentic. And I think that transmission that you're talking about is a big part of that. But what do you think it is about the film in terms of its like, I don't know, its strategies or its effects that makes that possible? I feel like it's almost a lack of strategy that makes it possible, you know, and Mm -hmm. I I feel like Vin Vendors has said that he's learned things from his own films, you know, so it's like he learned about movies from making movies. So he grew up in Germany, post-war Germany, and he's been quoted saying, you know, there was no television and there really weren't Mm -hmm. many movies. And the only photographs he saw were in newspapers, not art photography. So Mm -hmm. certain aspects of filmmaking, you know, despite his experiences as a student, are sort of improvisatory and tentative. Mm -hmm. And then I think when he describes the process of constructing this film, it's a film that's built of pieces. Oh, that just connected a lot of dots for me. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like it means that each piece, I mean, ideally is something that is extremely personal and meaningful, you know, so rather than bending a story to fit Mm -hmm. a really narrowly conceived arc of what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. It's sort of this artful collage of 
these moments. And I think, you know, Peter Heimke was describing how, what he was able to write, how Vim vendors went to him in Austria and yeah. described what... I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, like, and and he can't do it. You know, it's and Vim vendors' idea was just a sort of a gestural idea. You know, it's like, mm. you know, who are these people moving through Berlin? I mean, I think it's important to note on the subject of road movies... He had lived in the United States for, I think, eight years before returning to Berlin yeah. to make this movie. So in a way, he was a tourist or he mm -hmm. was estranged from his own home, his own origins. Mm -hmm. There is already a quality about Berlin that especially even now, but I think back then that there's like a real reminder of what's missing, that there's a lot of negative space, mm -hmm. I mean, in every sense of the word. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he was saying that um, not only did he learn about making movies, but he learned how to be a person from making movies. Mm -hmm. And so he started making movies of alienation and ended up making movies of connection, which is beautiful, you know? So, you know, so to me, I feel like Part of it is in the method of construction. And then I think mm -hmm. part of it is just like in the extreme uncanniness of the casting, like picking yes. these faces that you, yeah. you know, Got not it. just the yeah. principal cast, but every, you know, the extras, like everyone mm -hmm. who are extra people, but they're not extra people. They're essential mm -hmm. peoples. It's just seeing all these incredibly beautiful, vivid faces and scenarios that people are in. Yeah. The face is 100%. And I love the way you describe Bruno Ganz's face in your essay and the kind of like specificity of how each feature works, mm. kind of letting us in and giving this expressivity even to a character that speaks so little or spends so much of the time in the film as a unseen bystander. That eye contact that we see throughout the film too between not just him but other angels looking directly into the camera mm -hmm. and acknowledging the camera as this kind of friendly presence, I find so modern. Yeah. Like a thing about the film that thinking back to what you were saying at the beginning about how it kind of like hits now maybe even more effectively than it did when you first saw it stylistically, like that direct eye contact which I love it when anyone does it. I like the Jonathan Demi close-up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. anyone like just looking straight into the camera for a second. And it's so powerful here. It's positively discombobulating. I love it. Yeah. It's, mm. it's not what you're used to people mm -hmm. doing in movies, but mm -hmm. it's done right. It's just, it's beautiful. And it's psychologically, I'm not sure how it's working, but it hits a different part of your brain. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. they're looking at me. Yeah. I don't know if you can get mirror neurons going with a movie from 1987, but you know, if you can get those empathetic kind of, you know, things going on, you, you feel more of what they're doing and saying by virtue of the fact that you're making, at least to your brain, you're making eye contact with them, which is just amazing. So when you say mirror neurons, you're saying like your brain is activated by looking directly in someone's... Well, what, what, so like when you're in a room with somebody uh, or possibly as we all stare at each other here now, uh, it's easier in person, obviously, than online. But what mirror neurons effectively are, if I'm sitting in a room, for example, with a client, if they're describing what's happening, if my empathetic gene or valve or whatever is working right, um, we're actually starting to exchange these mirror neurons back and forth where I can almost feel what they're describing because I'm attuned to them. 
it's not just something that people do in a therapy office. It's we all do that with each other all the time. So like if you're in a room with a disgruntled, you know, grocery store clerk or whatever who's having a bad day and you feel that when you're interacting with them, that's the mirror neuron in that exchange, like saying like, oh, I, I just got a little piece of what you're experiencing by virtue of us interacting there. And this happens all the time. It's not some magical like certain conditions have to be there. It's just what humans do. It's how we kind of navigate in the world, you know probably from some evolutionary psychology perspective. But obviously, it uh, doesn't happen in movies too often, but that could be maybe at least on your end, no, obviously not on <laughs> Bruno Gantz's end. You could be picking up some of what he's actually experiencing both as the character in the movie and him as as Bruno Gantz as, and what he's putting into that of himself. So just a, a whole bunch of possible human exchanges going on just, just because of that, what I always think of as the Jonathan Demi close-up, but I'm, I'm sure people were doing it before him, so. I feel like it was like an Ozu device. Oh, yeah. And I mean that, yeah. But yeah, yeah but I feel like, I know, it's the Jonathan Demi. Yeah. The Jonathan Demi close-up. The interesting thing is thinking about these people now, I, I feel like almost every principal is no longer alive, mm. which feels very moving because that was not always the case when I watched this movie and yeah. there's something it takes on a different quality of urgency yeah you know looking into those yeah. pieces well and also to think about I mean that with the cinematographer you know that that he was 80 years old when he made this film called out of retirement and that his gaffer the the person he worked with for 50 years was one year older than him so you basically have an 80 year old and an 81 year old setting up all these lighting conditions I mean it's just when you're explaining kind of about them vendors is like upbringing and how he was come kind of constructing this the word that i thought of was conducting uh, more than mm -hmm. constructing and constructing mm -hmm. for sure but as you listen to him describe the process and i should say i'm taking a lot of this from a, a really wonderful um 42 minute or so angels among us thing that's on the criterion uh channel right now it was a 2003 documentary so they were all 20 some years removed from the movie but reflecting back on it and it was it was great and uh but in there he said the whole reason he got into movies and still thinks probably is why he makes movies, at least as of 2003, was because he likes putting music into movies. So he just talked about how music is his whole portal into everything, how that was kind of, you know, he didn't say needle drops because he's probably not going to use that phrase. But he's basically like, I just like to combine music and images, which they can, that idea of him as the composer was what resonated with the dots that I connected. was like, oh, he took the orchestra without a piece and they all kind of came up with the piece together. <laughs> and he just kind of conducted it in such a way where it's like, ask a conductor to explain some of that stuff. Maybe Tar could explain it, but like most people, sorry, we have to get one of those in every, every episode. But there's just a lot there that's just like, he's really just bringing out all these things in people. Um, I know Peter Hanke and that thing says, what Vendors does best is create space for things to develop. Mm -hmm. I think you also have to be a certain age as a director, an artist, to realize that that is way more powerful <laughs> of a place artistically to be in than really trying to rigidly control every single aspect of something or trying to say, this has to be how I want it and everyone needs to serve my vision. Um, he was so open by whatever age he was when he was making that, that he, he let himself be influenced by every single aspect of it. And did not freak out like I would have done when they got to the set with no script and they were filming people who didn't know what thoughts were going to go with what they were doing. So they didn't really kind of know how to act. And so they were all just kind of servicing this thing that could have gone so horribly wrong. 
but instead it works almost miraculously. It's like, how, how does this work? Even he seemed kind of surprised by it. He's like, how did this become such a big movie? Like, people tell me they got married because of this movie. People tell me this movie changed their lives. Bruno Gantz said, like, anytime he went into a room after this movie or on an airplane, people would tell him, we feel so glad that you're on this airplane. We feel safer. <laughs> oh, that's so scary. <laughs> yeah, but and he's, but he was saying, it's like, it's just, it's changed my life so much. And he was, you know, fairly on in his years by that point. Um, but he's just like, it just changed my life because of how people have viewed me since then. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you know what I think as you were talking about it, it's interesting to think about how there was that sort of remake and and the filmmaker is in that video. And he's yeah. the one person <laughs> that seems like a little out of place, you know, talking about the kind of making of since he wasn't there for it. He was there for for the sort of American. No. Yeah. Like, why is Brad Siberlein in there? Yeah. Get out of there, buddy. But I thought, you know, it really is telling the differences between that film, which, oh God, you yeah. know, starred two huge American stars of the 90s, you know, and is very deliberate what its filmmaking is and what it wants it to be, you know, mm -hmm. so it forces things in a way that the original oh. does not. And the Goo Goo Dolls song, too. <laughs> I mean, for better or worse. <laughs> That's what it's most known for, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the musically, the orchestra for Wings of Desire, did you see that part in there? It was like six people in that orchestra making all of that music. Oh a a six-person orchestra and a choir. And one of those six instruments was a harp. So it was really like five instruments generating this really just gorgeous... Are you saying a harp doesn't count? Because... That was my childhood instrument. Ooh. I got one right here. That's how you got into Wings of Desire. Yeah. This childhood we're hearing I about. Know. Yeah. I'm telling I have you, to like, say. I really peaked when I was like 12, 13, and it's like been really a precipitous decline. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious too, and, and you can certainly say, oh, I don't really want to talk about that, but I know from knowing you for a long time um, that you're a, a well-traveled person uh, in terms of you, you've, you've been to lots of country. Do, do you think anything about being such a fan of Ben Vendors and road movies, because I remember you wrote a, a fantastic piece on Until the End of the World uh, also years ago. I love Until the End of the World. I know. Yeah, I, you're like a stand for that. I remember that. I, I and, am uh, a stand. <laughs> it's like it, just me standing for that movie. You're waiting to find the others. But no, I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, like at, at uh, the video store that I worked at in the late 90s, there was... I mean, that, it was a, a holy grail that the, the director's cut. Now it's just like something someone can watch on the Criterion channel with no effort. I know. The Criterion one is different from the one that was oh, really? released. Yes, it's longer. Oh, wow. It's like five hours though, right? Yeah, it's, it's long. I mean, but I love it. I feel like it's really telling to think about the kind of phases of his artistic development. And so... Who said more, yeah. I feel like he was kind of feeling his way to a technique mm -hmm. in Wings of Desire. Yeah. And in Until the End of the World, maybe he felt more at home, which in a certain way might be a disadvantage to the actual like storytelling of the movie. I mean, it like obviously Until the End of the World is like an extremely ambitious, multi-continent, like long story with many strands that are sort of like narrative goal-seeking kind of storytelling as opposed to this movie, which yeah. really arrives at a point but doesn't have characters. I feel like there are long stretches of being in search of a purpose. Yeah. That movie might be the culmination of a technique where it's like it might almost be too much for the viewing <laughs> public, but I feel like the this The five-hour version? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean... And she's in it too, right? She's, she's in it. She's the yeah. heroine. You know, it's yeah, been, that's what I thought. She's so wonderful. You know, she's she's also in that uh, Claire Denis movie. We're talking about Solveig de Martin. Oh, we haven't married. even talked about Claire Denis. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We haven't talked about Claire Denis. But yeah, she's in that Claire Denis movie, I Can't Sleep. 
Um, oh, okay. Which is a really great never seen it. sort of noir serial killer-ish, trafficking-ish movie that takes place in Paris. Mm-hmm. And it's great. I don't know where it can be found, but it's a Claire Denis deep cut that I really like that she's in. Yeah. Did we say that yet? Any no. That, that she, no, you, yeah. you go. You. No, no. I, I think, I feel like, Veronica, do you want to talk? I've been don't talking too much. Don't give me an much. assignment. Just if you want to say something, <laughs> just say it. <laughs> uh, just that she was, it was her idea. I mean, Karina, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was her idea for the Peter Falk. I mean, that, that was her, right? Like she suggested that to him. So, and yeah. She had something to do with connecting them or something like that. But also, I'm not sure. I don't want to mess this up. She was an assistant director on this or was it a different title? She, I think she was his assistant director and, and okay. she worked also on Paris, Texas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like we should also talk about Paris, Texas as like the antecedent yes, to this movie <laughs> because I feel like he's a filmmaker of of silences and landscapes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i feel like his process of learning to make films you know obviously took this huge turn or or was like a an inflection point in business speak <laughs> <laughs> the synergy was that yeah. yeah yeah man and i feel like there are elements of that film in this film, hmm. I feel like Vin Vendors does really well with these really sort of robust uh, male writers who are not necessarily traditional screenwriters, but write a lot about alienation. Oh, yes. Yeah, Sam Shepard wrote that. I just yes. remembered. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, because I, I was having a Paris, Texas conversation with a friend recently and her husband, who is in his 30s, was saying that he just like despise the lead character in Paris, Texas, because he's such a bastard. He is problematic. (laughs) He is problematic. And when you think about it, but it's, you know, it's what I think is interesting is that um, I feel like Vim Vender's own alienation, I'm presuming he's not like a wife beater. So I think it's just his own alienation and the desire to connect and like reconnect and make amends. Those kind of maybe universal feelings are the ones that were really transmitted to me watching Paris, Texas. And so mm-hmm. like some of the really objectionable things about the that character and the scenario between the nuclear family recede a bit in favor mm-hmm. of the romanticism, mm-hmm. you know, of the connection between the characters, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. did you see that one around eight years old? I did, yeah. I don't want to brag. No, no, no. That that came after. It was like I think I think Wings of Desire was my first Ben Benders okay. movie. Okay. So just to be clear, yes. I don't know if you guys see the links. I mean, aside from Claire Denis, you know, and it's interesting. It's I feel like there's like a constellation. I don't know if you Brian Eno has this um, keynote speech where he talks about um, not a genius but a senius, where there's like mm. a stellium of artists that sort of are working in tandem or almost in conversation with one another. Mm, I love that. What's the word you used? A senius. Like a scene. Play. It's like it's like when Bono said, I'm not writing a memoir, I'm writing a wee more. Oh. <laughs> Except it's not like that. <laughs> Except not. <laughs> okay. So it but it is a real word? No. Oh, okay. I think he made he made it up. Okay. That's I love it. Jam. That's great. It's a neologism from Brian Eno. All right. Genius. Yes. Genius. <laughs> Every month on Brightwall Dark Room, we belly up with critics, artists, and contributors to speak from the heart about film, which got us thinking, what if we had a space like that every day of the week? A space where artists can go off script on love for their craft. Introducing Gallery, 
a new cinema club built by today's most celebrated filmmakers. Helmed by Indian Paintbrush, the folks who brought you the Grand Budapest Hotel and the upcoming Asteroid City, Gallery combines personal film collections, thoughtful essays, and live experiences into a single destination. Built by artists as a response and alternative to binge culture, Gallery is not a streaming service. It's all human, no algorithm. A communal cinema experience that celebrates the nuances so often missing in today's industry. And Brightwell Darkroom listeners are invited to receive early access before its official public launch. Gallery is shaped by many filmmakers that we love here at Brightwell Darkroom, including Mike Mills, Karen Kusama, Ed Lockman, Taylor Russell, Ethan Hawke, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Members will enjoy access to these artists' hand-picked film libraries, as well as original videos, audio stories, in-depth articles, and exclusive live events. Because, like Brightwell Dark Room, Gallery is a community that believes movies are better experienced together. To join the club, go to join.gallery.com slash BWDR. That's G-A-L-E-R-I-E dot com slash BWDR. There's like an interesting thing to think about Vim Vendor's work and Claire Denis' work as wings of one another's you know like they're mm-hmm. linked in some way in gen, in some genetic way like creatively genetic way well i love that that's my feeling about them and i feel and then obviously like you know there's robbie mueller who worked with them vendors and sure. worked with jim yeah. jarmusch you know so it, it just feels like there's this family tree of filmmakers that mm-hmm. their work is very distinct but in some way they're related to one another which feels very exciting because I like all of them. And also they've all made black and white movies, the people that you've been mentioning, right? Like Jim Jarmusch. And yeah. Has Claire, did, Claire has she done black I feel oh, like yeah. she has in my head, but I'm probably wrong. They are like vibes directors, mm-hmm. right? Going yeah. back to what you were saying about the idea of wanting to just put music into films. I feel like thinking about Claire Denis, it's like I just think about Tinder Sticks, basically, mm. and how music video-y a lot of that work is, and no less memorable for kind of being that way. And there's also an industrial connection insofar as Agnes Godard mm-hmm. was a camera operator on oh, Wings of Desire and has worked that. a lot with Claire Denis with Beau Trouble Every Day, 35 Shots of Rum, which I think is like a really beautifully photographed film. And it's interesting to go back a little bit, Karina, to what you were saying about this being such a movie that's interested in like sensations and settings, very much like Paris, Texas, and City of Angels being a movie that's just like so plot driven. I mean, I think City of Angels is hysterical, so it's no shade <laughs> to my man, Nick. But I was just watching, I think it's a Lincoln Center interview with the vendors where he makes exactly the same point where he talks about, he's like, you know, Americans are going to American and they made a movie that's about story and my movie is about space. Ooh, and I feel yeah. like that's what really like um, lights me up about Wings of Desire is how much of a kind of contemporary like city symphony film it is and how good it is at capturing i i think and i should say that as a person who has like very little connection to berlin has been there once doesn't speak german (laughs) it's just like not one of the like berlin enthusiasts of the people that i know but that sense of like dynamism and collision between different parties and a city as a space that has opportunities for connection 
baked into it is something that really turns me on about this film and its attention to like public spaces and porous spaces like the space of the library is a place where all these people who don't know each other are kind of collected together and working communally in a sense uh, maybe it's just having been in like educational contexts for like my entire adult <laughs> life but that part feels so resonant for me yeah well and i feel like a library one reason why i love um actual books rather than digital books is because it feels like they represent other people. So mm -hmm. a library is like a collection yeah. of voices mm -hmm. on top of a collection of, you know, breathing sentient people accessing those voices. And yeah. I feel like that's another thing that this film is is doing. It's like an index of things. You know, I that's a line I know you use in the essay. I remember something about an oh. index of Okay. I'm quoting myself accidentally. According to yourself five years ago, you are correct. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I find it very moving watching Kurt Bois, you know, who plays Homer oh, um, God, yeah. as a very elderly man, you know, mm -hmm. um, musing on these kind of empty spaces. You know, I think the thing about Germany is, is particularly Berlin is how marked it was as a location of the Holocaust and as, as a location of war, you know, during World War II. And so mm -hmm. its entire landscape is full of missing people and full of missing buildings. And then having this then contemporary elderly man who's like taking on this persona of an epic poet. Mm -hmm. It's a device, but his history and the things in his face, you know, he was, he was an actor from, I think maybe the twenties and he's, in 80 in his 80s in this movie mm -hmm. i think it's his last film yeah he was he plays the pickpocket in casablanca um so he's been in all these you know he so he became a refugee and went to the united states before world war ii and then eventually returned to germany and acted in many many films so you feel like he is a sort of emissary of films across time and across mm -hmm cultures and also a survivor in a sense who has returned to this place this kind of strange place you know I mm -hmm. feel like we should think about how many things were unplanned in the filming of the movie like when he's kind of walking across an empty field and and there's a sofa there it's that was just something that they discovered you know and mm -hmm. there's a sense of the eternal uh, in him, also in the angels, of course, but in this man. Mm -hmm. And then also like sort of finding this new world, you know, and not despairing of it. Like you were saying, Veronica, I think there's an incredible dynamism in Berlin mm -hmm. at like a really amazing energy, which has drawn so many people there. And then there's like an overwhelming latency of all the history that's taken place there. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that mm -hmm. his character kind of embodies a lot of those things, those contradictions. Absolutely. And Gans too, I am so like moved when he's first sort of discussing his fatigue with eternal life, I guess. And is like, I'm, I've said something like I'm sick of um, eternity and forever. And I just want now, 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 and this like desire for presentness and like embodied experience that there's just such a complex kind of treatment of time. And I think you're totally right that the film understands how to retain that sense of discovery in these more improvisational moments as opposed to just sort of marshalling them toward a kind of coherence. Like 
isn't it lucky we found this thing and how great it slots in or something, but there, there's actually a sense of spontaneity. And I don't quite know how to choose that, <laughs> but that seems so at the surface in it in a way that allows the movie, I think, also to be quite funny, like to have a levity, even though it's dealing with all these super heavy kind of forces of love and eternity and history, but still manages to be like charmed and charming as a result. 100%, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Like the comedic moments, I feel like that's another point that Vendors makes about constructing the movie, you know, that he mm -hmm. realized that the movie lacked a comedic element. And I think mm -hmm. without that comedic element, it becomes too elegiac and like yeah. mythical and ungrounded. Yeah, self-serious too. Yeah, exactly. And and I think we all agree, like Peter Falk is that anchor who brings the comedy and the warmth to it. Yeah. Yes. You know, I adore that it seems like so many of his own thoughts become entwined in his character. Yeah, he's playing himself. Did you see my quote about, or the quote where he just, it's like, I'm gonna throw out all Vim Vendor's lines and just give you some stream of conscious stuff. <laughs> it's all just him talking in his words about why life is so amazing. But he kept mentioning his own grandma and then they're like, angels don't have grandmas. But they left that part in because they loved it so much, which, you know, Vendor says in that, in that uh, Criterion thing, he's like, <laughs> technically that's a huge problem, like from the plot. He can't have a grandma, but I love that. I love that so much. I left that part in. Maybe angels have grandmas. They do now. Yeah, <laughs> now they do. I love. I love the bit about the hat. You know when he's because it's like oh, that. Oh, good that's, hat's important. Yes, <laughs> and his drawings. You know, thinking about his drawings and how he drew and exhibited his drawings in real life. So just really feeling like you were getting a peek at a person who is incredibly familiar through his other roles, but also not someone any of us are ever going to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we all feel like we know him. Yeah. That's the, that's the, I mean, yeah, it's hard to imagine any other actor in that role. I mean, I, I, I've tried in my head for a few minutes to come up with like, who could do that now? And like in, in 2023, if this movie's being made. Pedro Pascal. Oh, hey. <laughs> that's actually really He's good. He's in okay. everything. <laughs> you're, better, you're better at this than me. No, no. I literally, I was thinking, I was like, who's as warm as Peter Falk? You know, like how many, because there aren't that many that's in American movies. I feel like that's not the quality that we're looking for. We're looking for heroic yeah. or stoic. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think Mark Ruffalo has that quality. Young Mark Ruffalo. Yes. Young, yeah. young Mark Ruffalo. That's how I think of him. That's great. Yeah. I love that. And I also just realized the movie was 1987, right? Mm -hmm. But this movie literally came out the same year as Princess Bride, which is what 12-year-old mm -hmm. me was when. I wasn't 12, but I was watched. That's that's how I knew Peter Falk <laughs> well before I saw, you know, Wings of Desire, um, was he was the grandpa who was reading the book in Princess Bride. And then I, you know, got into Columbo. I don't know. Is, do you guys think that's part of why? I mean, is it a Columbo thing? Like, what is it about him that, I mean, you described Bruno Gantz so well in your essay, Karina, about, I mean, I was, I was just looking for that that earlier quote. Do you have similar insight into why why Peter Falk's face is, is so nice to look at? He just has a warmth. I mean, obviously he's, you know, he had the issue with his eye. Like, I feel like there's like mm -hmm. an asymmetry. It's like he's he's actually a really handsome man, but um, oh, totally, but there's his rumpled like asymmetry sort of, you kind of forget that it's like obscured, you know, and then when you look at him, you know, in other films, you know, earlier films from the seventies, like he's a much like rougher, more urban yeah. character. I, I, I wonder also if it's, I mean, yes, Columbo. I mean, it's even cited in in the movie when you know yeah. passersby sort of 
wonder <laughs> if it's him or not. But I wonder if people age into something because I feel like thinking about Bruno Gans, like in The American Friend, I, I love him. I think his face does contain something like essentially decent, but I feel like there's something that happened over time that deepened that, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if everyone if their characters improve with age, you know, like mm-hmm. their their ethical character, but <laughs> there's something in certain people where, you know, not just actors, you feel like actually time has worked well upon them. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's true yeah. for both of those actors. Yeah, that's great. Wow. I definitely feel that way about Paul Newman when I was writing about Ooh. him, uh, like later yeah. on. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, old Paul Newman. <laughs> There's something like burnished about his appearance that's obviously always been like totally incredible. But yeah, that something mm, becomes more visible in the eyes even and the bone structure from aging like over time, which is part of why it's so scary. The prospect of all the things that people end up doing for various reasons that make them look just quite unlike the way they used to look. Very great point. But there's so much legibility in in both Peter Falk and Bruno Gans as you're describing them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is it okay if I just very briefly quote Karina back to Karina? (laughs) (laughs) So this is near the end of the essay uh, and it says, before the internet, before everyone kept an official record of self, these angels are the keepers of the world's messy and elaborate fanfare. They are spiritual detectives in search not of causes or effects, crimes or perpetrators, but of each soul's articulation. Wings of Desire is not a movie about small things, although its fabric comprises epigrams of stray thought and accidental glances. As the angels share their highlights, we understand there is no filler in life if we observe it properly. I think that's so beautiful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no no question, no notes. It's all it's all generated by the by the movie. Like it's just such an eloquent movie. I feel like it's like that impossible task. Like the movie is the movie. It's like when David Lynch talks about like people (laughs) saying like, "Tell us what the movie's really about." No, the movie is about what you just you know. There is no about. It's it's the thing in in itself. So I feel like sometimes the writing is an attempt to like you know track down what it's stirred up. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that's, that's the whole point of the site. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And also just, I would just say for anyone who wants to read through her archives on our site, one of the things I love best about your writing uh, is how, how much time you spend talking about people's faces or physicality or things like that. Really just drilling into like really small, well-articulated details. I, she does this here with Bruno Gantz in this essay, but equally as effectively uh, talking about Prince and Purple Rain or talking about Kate Blanchett and Carol. I don't even know how to describe it. It feels like a magic trick to me when you do it, but I, uh, I don't touch any of those words when when I'm editing because I just wish more people wrote like that in the film world today. It's wonderful. And and for a film full of faces, um, this one this one was kind of like perfectly set up for you to write about. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I just, it's a fantastic essay. Every time I read it, I'm just like, wow, this is chiseled perfection. This is great. Sorry to make you uncomfortable. No, no, but I, I am uncomfortable, <laughs> but I have to say like in, in a shout out to you, like, I feel like you're an incredible nurturer of writers. So, oh, you know, which geez, is like, man. yeah. Thank you. I mean, also being a writer yourself, like, I feel like you're yeah. kind of like you underplay your own writing as you support others writing. So yeah, I don't see it as a competition. I, I, I love writing and I, I don't yeah. love, I mean, hopefully that comes through with all the, all the work we've done over the years. That's, that's what it's all about for me. Yeah. I, I think I've said to you a million times, I was like, I don't understand how you didn't end up working for the New Yorker like 15 years ago. Like it's, oh. it's still, it still drives me crazy that they didn't know about you. <laughs> 
Damn it. So, yes. Yeah, from your lips to David Remnick's ears. <laughs> yes, I will try to contact him on Snapchat. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Excellent yeah, news. or Mastodon. Where does everyone go now that Twitter's broken? Mastodon. I know. Yeah. Where are you guys going? Every time he does a new dumb thing, I'm like, oh, we're going to be here. So we have accounts set up everywhere. We just don't use them all. Yeah. It's kind of like the frog boiling in the water. Like, at what point do you realize, like, oh, fuck, we're just giving Elon Musk money now. Like, <laughs> I know. No, it's, it's, I feel like it's like eating a bad piece of cake. Like, I, it's like I keep eating it, and, but it doesn't get better. And I'm like, maybe if no. I have a little more. It's yeah. Like, no. This, this next bite's going to be so it's good. It's me sick. <laughs> or like an expired LaCroix or whatever, whatever your thing is. Yeah. Karina, I want to ask you, I was really struck when you were talking about like getting into the film as a kid. And when I was thinking about getting into Amelie as a kid, you mentioned in both of those films, there is a kind of pressure on the audience to make the romantic connection or the attachment because the characters haven't met yet. And that happens kind of at the end of both films. And that makes a lot of sense to me as being effective for a young person, because when you're really young, like your love life is this speculative thing in the future like it's you imagine it will happen to you someday but it's all in future tense so even though these characters are like older we'll say like fully adult people <laughs> and in Gans's case like a middle-aged man there's this sense of like almost like coming of age aspect to their romance so what is it like to rewatch the film now as we've all kind of ostensibly come of age is it still effective for you in the same ways? Like you had joked about that speculative register establishing like unreal expectations for one's own lived experience, but how does it kind of charm you now? I think it has changed with time because when I watch it now, it's not as much about the romance of the characters. It's about the characters realizing the version of the, themselves that they're striving towards, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and you hear it in Marianne's narratives to herself. And she has these kind of like self-correcting thoughts. It's almost like her own foibles have kept her from something important, momentous. Yeah. So I feel like that's one part of it. And then I think the other part of it, which I don't think we've talked about, is the presence of Nick Cave in, in the film and yeah. his performances. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the other part of the film that I see more now is thinking about age and mortality and history and transience. Mm -hmm. And Nick Cave's presence, you know, singing the songs that he does and hearing his musings, but also like connecting to the person who he has become now are so meaningful. There's an overlay, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of the loss that he's experienced and how he started a sort of yeah. kind of um, missive where people can write in particularly grieving people and he responds to them and gives them advice because mm -hmm. he's suffered so enormously. That's so good. I've been reading those. They're amazing. Yeah. I, and, and he displays so much empathy and, and just a striving towards growth and presence. There's something about maturity and recognizing the importance of things that aren't romance, you know, that also mm -hmm. all these stray moments that feel like they're going to culminate in this connection. Actually, the connection is very important, but all the other moments are equally important mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as important as they feel to the characters that you see. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the emotional strength of the movie is really 
dispersed, but also more powerful. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I feel connected to all of those things. And I feel like that kind of fragility of all these people more, mm. you know, it feels very moving to feel that it's a document of all the people and like many of them are no longer living. And this was in some cases like the culmination of a life's work yeah. at like this beautiful bookend to like many, many things that they did. So, yeah. So that's how I feel about it now. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks. All right. You got the job. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. You, you passed. We will, we will, we would have decided to air this episode. Oh, great. Last call. Karina, you texted me like three weeks ago that you had your idea in mind. I had my idea in mind. Okay. I feel like excited about it. I'm, I'm sure people are aware of it, but I kind of knew about it and then forgot about it. But I read John Gregory Dunn's Monster, which is his record of him and Joan Didion writing the Michelle Pfeiffer, Robert Redford film of Close and Personal. And it's like everybody's in it. Nancy Myers is in it. Scott yeah. Rudin's in it. Like, <laughs> like they wrote this movie for eight years. Oh, wow. And they wrote many other movies in the meantime and wrote novels and reportage and covered government <laughs> like overthrows and elections. And so it's just like an incredible portrait of being creative against many odds, like a a really good picture of the movie business as it was in a certain time where you Mm. could fly to Hawaii and, you know, put (laughs) yourself up in a hotel with your child and just write for a long time. (laughs) It's a really interesting counterpoint to Joan Didion's memoirs. Like it sort of lets you see the nature of the marriage that she is kind of trying to, you know, mourn and recreate in her memoirs. Like it's you know, just like a fascinating portrait of two writers at work and and two filmmakers at work with many other filmmakers kind of weighing in. Mm. It's like Robert Redford has all the sage advice about movie making. I just feel like it's like a really great picture of creating something and also navigating choppy waters. So I, I highly recommend. Awesome. Wow. Is this a book or a film? It's a book. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's called Monster. <laughs> it's a book, but it's about films. So I feel like yeah, that's I, great. Yeah. I think it does it all. Yes. Who would you fan cast in the film adaptation of this book? Oh, John Gregory Dunn. You know, these are really hard people to fan cast <laughs> because they're so identified. Like they, you yeah. know, they. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'm under pressure. No. Come no, back no. to me. I'm going to think about it. The magic of editing will make it sound like you knew right off the top of your head. Yeah. Doesn't have to be based on physical resemblance. It could be pure vibes. You can also just go with Pascal again. John. <laughs> yeah. Pascal is both. No. Yeah. It's yeah, exactly. with sock puppets. Yeah. Nick Cage adaptation style. Yeah a good Joan Didion like you guys weigh in I mean god how do you answer I mean, that question I mean aside from <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave obviously oh just because she could do anything I would guess Michelle Williams could pull it off somehow oh that's a good point mm. yes only because I just I mean I can't believe everything she's able to do every time I see her I was like wait yeah she could do this wait she can do that but I feel like that fragility yeah but with like an intelligence and um steeliness yeah. co-present she's not quite like bird-like enough to kind of be like the Joan Diddy. She looks of. a little tiny to me. I think that could, that she could get there. Okay. All right. She could, she could get there. <laughs> hey, if you can learn to if you can learn to be a trapeze artist in eight weeks, yeah. you can figure out how to look like Joan Didion. I know. Or AI can just fix it. <laughs> One highlight of this book is that John says that sometimes he would send Joan to meetings with executives because if they both went, they would expect her to take notes. Right. Oh god. Yeah. Nothing's changed. No. Yes. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> 
Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on the pod, Karina. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a dream. <laughs> it's been a dream. I got really nervous, but you made it you made it so effortless. So thank you for having me. So excited. Oh, I'm sorry you're nervous. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was wonderful to, to just hear you talk about something you love so much. Well, thanks. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. It's so nice to, to be here in conversation. But I want to hear your, you're going to recommend stuff, right? No, we never <laughs> no, do. No, we don't. <laughs> what? That way we, we can't be canceled. <laughs> no. It's just, just me. It's just <laughs> like yeah. hanging out here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're we, the staff member making the recommendation. Yeah. yeah. We, 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 we leave you. We, We're not we, even uh, in this week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we cut all oh, of us man. out, and it's just a podcast with you monologue. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm never watching something good anyway. I'm literally just watching, like, Top Chef. You no, know? no, when you were like, what have you watched last? I was like, oh, my God, I just watched, like, two episodes of The Diplomat, and it's like, <laughs> fine? I don't know. Yeah, that's my viewing practice, too, is, like, what just came out on Netflix? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and mine is like, what am I? Yeah, so we, my son and I just started Better Call Saul since I never actually watched oh. that. We finished Breaking Bad. Karina gave my kids when they were young, when she wrote a wonderful kids book called The Insomniacs, she sent them little like gift baskets or I don't, I don't know what you call them, a copy of the book and all this stuff. But anyway, Elliot is now, you know, 13 and, and Malin has a driver's license. So so it's it's time for Better Call Saul. Yes. So so we watched Breaking Bad and my daughter did a little Wes Anderson inspired short film a few weeks ago for a film oh. class. And yeah, it's just like, oh, these these kids, I love them. Uh, but they're oh, not little. Adorable. They're not little anymore. No, but, I know. But I, they I, have good movie taste. So I, I feel like your, your work uh, is done. So far, so good. Yes. Drop the mic. You walk away. Yes, I'm done. This is actually, uh, I'll let them know when I get home. You guys are on your own. You got it. I trust you. Karina, where um, can our listeners find you online? What do you want to plug? Oh, where can they find you? And or do you want to be found? Do I want to be found? You can, I mean, I feel like I have a very uneventful social media presence, but I am everywhere as Wolf and Fox because my dog who has now passed away looks like a fox. So. Do you still have the Instagram account for the dogs? I do. Okay. It's Barry and friends because Barry's still All right. there. Don't worry. Always <laughs> gramming the dogs. Awesome. Forever dogs. And Barry did not make any noise during the recording. No, nor Marcel, nor oh. Mickey. Oh, wow. You have added. I did not know. <laughs> yeah. I need to consult you professionally. <laughs> mental problems. Yeah. It wasn't on purpose that I have three dogs, but now I have three dogs. Yeah, well, you're a good dog mom, so it's they 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 have, they've found a good home. Oh, thanks. But yeah, if you if you go over three, then it's a disorder. So no, just kidding. I, I think that three <laughs> that's a might... joke. No, no, no. I think it is actually. I feel like I might be. I think I found the the line, and I'm maybe right over it. Anyway, hi guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for having me. Goodbye, everybody. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye. To read this month's issue, please visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR and at the BWDR podcast. And you can subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates on every issue. And to help the Bright Wall Dark Room podcast keep going and growing, please subscribe, share it with a friend, rate it, review it on Apple, on Spotify, on wherever you listen to your podcast at. Truly, honestly, nothing helps us more than getting the word out. We appreciate your support. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. Bye.
it's sort of uh, apocalyptically pollen full here in New York. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know if this is podcast worthy. It just had like a weird sort of aura happen. I was like, I don't. Oh, hopefully that's not me about to be down for the count. Oh, no. Um, at the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a visual aura. Oh, would that be like a pre migraine? Uh, you know, phenomenon? I don't get migraines very often, but there was definitely uh-huh. like a kaleidoscopic thing happening. Uh-huh. Oh, no. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope we don't make it worse. <laughs> no, no, you're doing great. You've calmed Keep me right updated. down. Okay. Yeah. You can always just close your eyes. <laughs> yeah. If you need to tap out, just give us a signal. <laughs> I'm going to do this podcast blind. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like us. <laughs>